0: And welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that puts the politics into, oh god, you know what, shit? Yeah, politics. This is episode 90, I'm and Duyev, and as cabinet ministers prepare to set out the road to Brexit, I'm wondering just how easy it'll be to drive down a series of U-turns and dead ends that then culminate in a Thelma and Louise-style end. Yes, don't worry everyone, within the next three weeks, Prime Minister and the only person who enjoys going to the dentist, Theresa May, will make a speech that will explain what sort of relationship the UK wants to have with the EU. And not a moment too soon! I mean it's only been 20 months since the referendum and only 11 months since article 50 was triggered so you know this isn't so much closing the stable door after the horse has bolted as attempting to find the stable door in order to close it only to find the stable was knocked down 50 years ago and there's now a brand new block of unaffordable luxury flats in its place and the only echo of a horse is a nearby glue factory and some Tesco burgers. There will be two speeches from May, which is exciting because, you know, just in case you're worried that you're going to miss hearing aggressive yet completely hollow sound bites at some point in your month, you get a chance to do it all over again on the second time round. Then, if the headline events weren't enough, May will be supported by Dropped Yoghurt, David Davis, Marjorie the Trash Heap, Boris Johnson, and Disgraced MP, Liam the Disgraced Fox the Disgrace. All you now need is Jamiroquai, and you've announced this year's worst festival lineup. Though I'd prefer to hear JK sing the same track again and again with slightly different words any day rather than hear Liam Fox tell people for an hour that he didn't say Brexit would be easy when he said it would be easy, which he didn't say apart from when he said it. Three weeks is a long time in politics, though, especially if you have to watch the fucking thing, and there's every chance that in that time the Cabinet could tear themselves apart, as pundits are referring to the 11 ministers in charge of Brexit as the War Cabinet. This is presumably because in their heads it's a valiant effort to win freedom from the enemy when in reality it's not a war if you've chosen to do it and no violence is involved and even if it was, you can't really win a war by letting the whole country get gunned down on the front line before blaming them for your lack of preparation. EU chief negotiator and someone who constantly looks like he's about to warn you that a film may contain mild swearing, Michel Barnier, he has said that there may not be a transition deal if the UK doesn't agree to the EU conditions that were set out ages ago that basically include, excuse me, don't forget all those EU citizens in the UK and, you know, the entirety of Ireland. And Barnier says that he has some problems understanding the UK's position. Let me inform you, Michel, it's lying on the ground crying. And if it had parents, they'd be saying, we'll just leave without you then. David Davis said he was surprised to hear Barnier was unclear on the UK stance, but that is because David Davis probably gets surprised when someone turns a light on. Of course he's unclear, because everyone in the UK government is unclear, and not a single UK citizen has a fucking clue what is going on either. It couldn't be more unclear if you let off a smoke bomb during negotiations and only spoke while making wibble noises with your lips. (laughs) The real reason that this reject cast of the Dad's Army remake are called the Brexit War Cabinet, though, is because they keep battling each other, though sadly not enough for any casualties. To try and fix this, May has ordered the entire team to do an away day at her country residence in Chequers, because, yeah, I mean, why not take a day off to piss about with confidence building activities? We've got loads of time, right? We've we've got loads of time. I mean, let's be fair, it will probably be 12 hours of everyone playing their own games that they don't know the rules to, then blaming everyone else for not playing along, while Boris and Gove take turns holding knives under each other during a trust fall. Meanwhile, Labour still have absolutely no clue what on earth their Brexit stance is either, or even if they have a stance or have just fallen over, and what way is up anyway? Shadow Chancellor and sick boy in Train Spotting 12, John McDonnell, has said that a second referendum wouldn't be a good idea, but a general election would be better, because why trust the public to vote on something as complex as the path that we should take with EU legislations, customs unions and trade routes, when we could instead ask them to pick between a party that hasn't got a clue about Brexit, or a party that also hasn't got a clue about Brexit. I mean, why not just have a refer-election that works like a sort of BuzzFeed quiz where we ask people what pizza they like, whether they prefer tea or coffee, and if they prefer to date the rock, Emma Stone or a porcelain doll possessed with the ghost of an 18th century marquee? And I don't know, do you have a superiority complex and a fear of leaving your village? And then just present them at the end with whichever party they voted for and what sort of brexit we should have. A YouGov opinion poll last week put Labour four points below the Conservatives, which says Labour aren't doing enough to win over the public, but also that maybe, just maybe, the Conservatives are currently appealing to true British values by letting everyone publicly watch them fail but not admitting to it. So now Labour's attempt to bring back public trust is to restate that they would renationalise a lot of public services, a generally popular policy, and John McDonnell said that doing so would cost nothing because those services would be assets, therefore overtime cancelling out any costs. It's a tricky argument because re services could be very good for the economy and people, but it sort of depends who's in charge of them. I mean, if the decision-making abilities of the Conservatives or Labour now were suddenly in charge of energy, we'd likely find that it would only be a matter of weeks before consumers are freezing to death because the government can't decide if they should get hot water or a special type of water or no water at all. Like if daytime TV shows were hosted by a plastic figurine of a character from a show no one remembers and your weird aunt, Labour's Chukunamunna and Conservative Anna Subri appear together on the Mar show to rally for cross-party MPs to join together and block the sort of Brexit Theresa May wants, even though no one really knows what sort of Brexit she wants. This is why the whole thing is pretty tricky to fight, isn't it? Because it's really hard to rally people round by shouting, what do we want? Some certainty about something, but then maybe not what we get when we get certainty about it. When do we want it? About 20 months ago. In global news, the Winter Olympics opening ceremony saw a man who looks like your dad badly singing Beatles songs, but also North and South Korean athletes parading together in a hugely symbolic gesture. Gothic minion Kim Jong-un is yet to attend, but his younger sister, uh. Kim Jong-do, has been at the Games and according to CNN, her diplomatic dance is stealing the show. Well, I hope they get it off her before it crosses the borders or the next Olympics will be held in a brutal internment camp. Meanwhile, Vice President and the world's only entirely 3D printed human, Mike Pence, said that the US are open to talks with North Korea, but neither he or his wife stood up during their unified parade. So the question is, was his staying seated a political, peaceful protest of the kind that he berated NFL players for, or was it the only way he could disguise the erection he had from his wife by being overexcited at seeing quite so many women in one place? We will never know. Meanwhile, the US has suffered a severe stock market fall after concerns about the bond market, none of which I understand, but let's face it, Spectre was rubbish, so sort of makes sense. And finally, last week marked the 100 years of suffrage anniversary, celebrating a century of women having the vote to largely elect people who ignored them and continue to make their lives shitty. Theresa May made a speech in Manchester stating that women have a different approach to politics than men do, as it can be as much about listening and learning from others than broadcasting your own opinions. Cool, so I guess she's the exception to the rule then. May also announced measures to stop offensive online communications, which probably means most of governmental Twitter accounts should be deleted by the end of the week. Hello, how's you? Yes, that was a weak gag to finish that bit on, wasn't it? I know. Well, it's been one of those weird weeks of news where stuff has been happening because, well, things always do happen. That's how... The world works. It'd be weird if they just stopped. But ultimately, none of the stuff this past week uh, that's happened has been interesting, if you know what I mean. I mean, sort of, you know, it's not been interesting in a way that I could stick on this podcast. There's probably tons of interesting stuff, but I haven't really read it. I mean, there's a lot of repetition, you know, sort of like newsflash. Still nothing has happened with Brexit, but somehow people are talking about it. I am. I mean, I'm slightly worried that I've gained a sort of Stockholm Syndrome from 2016 and 2017, and I can't stop craving big, awful stories. Um, Essentially, what I'm saying is this week's show is not too long. The interview is really short compared to usual chats on the podcast, and it's half term, which means only about half of you tune in because you're too busy trying to work out what on earth to do with your children. And look, I'll be honest, the Winter Olympics is on, and all I want to do is watch that because it is great. It is great, isn't it? I mean, so many of the events make absolutely no sense whatsoever. I mean, is it called The skeleton? because that is what breaks first if you mess up? How do you realise that you're good at the skeleton? Do you accidentally fall down the stairs on a tea tray one day and think, oh, this is a thing I can do? Also, how is it that the figure skaters can do an amazing routine with flips and twists and land perfectly all of the time and then still get a red mark? Have the judges spotted a pube or something? I've got so many questions and so little of them are important. Um, I was also tempted to do a Valentine's special episode on this podcast like I did last year, But I worry that last year's was far too sexy for most of you. Um, Also, Valentine's is a bit nonsense, isn't it? Me and my wife are spending Valentine's Day uh, having a midwife appointment, followed by going to the new Sainsbury's near us as it's only just opened. Exciting. Oh, I wonder what normal things they'll sell that all the other Sainsbury's sell. Who will know until we go? Um, And then I'm going to watch Black Panther. Yeah, basically, I am a modern-day Casanova. And by that, I mean a small house for a large amount of condensed burning gas. So, uh, yeah, Valentine's can bore off. I am way more excited about Pancake Day because if, as they say, you are what you eat, then I'll have six or seven pancakes and I should finally get a flat stomach. Yeah, easy. A uh, bit of usual shit before we crack on. Uh, firstly, big, big thank you to Rob for donating to the Patreon and becoming a regular parpol patron i still haven't worked that out um anyway if you too would like to pay uh me so that i can watch the winter olympics i mean uh, sorry oh god uh If you would like to contribute to me spending more time on this podcast, then you too can donate to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro with a small monthly offering. Or you can do a one-off donation like Anita did. Thank you so very much, Anita. Um, And you can do that at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro kofi.com. And both of those links are also on various pages on the internet because I've used the internet before and yes, I'm boasting. Um, Thank you also to the couple of five-star reviews that the show's gained on the iTunes page. If any of the rest of you want to review the podcast and maybe even write a word or two about it please do that would be great seriously a word is fine if you just want to do one word even if it's a rude one like pumpernickel which translated means fart goblin oh i was so happy to learn that a few weeks ago just do that i'd be very happy with a five-star review with pumpernickel written underneath go for it also, uh, this week I wanted to quickly recommend the Guardian Politics podcast, which I do listen to most weeks, but in particular um, the one from the 31st of January with the title The Alternatives is amazing listening, right? Um, teacher Chakravarti, who's brilliant, um, interviews Preston City Councillor Matthew Brown about how they're successfully localising their services in Preston and keeping wealth in the area, and it is just so fascinating. It's well worth a listen. Um, which also brings me to another thing that someone online tweeted at me. Uh, Oz, thank you very much Oz for getting in touch. He asked, um, I assume it's a he or maybe a she or maybe a wizard. Who knows? Um, they asked uh, for me to look into more grassroots political organisations on this podcast, which is something that I'd absolutely love to do. But as I'm London based and slash slightly lazy, I only know my local ones like the one I've got on this week's show and the obvious big ones like Momentum. So if there are any grassroots political organisations or campaigns near you that I could try and contact and interview, then please drop me a line. Let me know. Um, so, Send all recommendations to the Papo Bo, Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, as per always. Um, I really should make that a jingle, shouldn't I? Maybe I'll do that next time. Um, send it to me. And, yeah, I'm not sure yet everyone will do lengthy interviews with them all or maybe do a one-off with several grassroots campaigns in it, but I'll work that out by myself because I am a big boy. I made my own dinner this evening. Check me out. Um, oh, and uh, in me being on other podcasts, Claxon, I am the guest on comic Matt Hoss's Drunken Comedian Podcast this week, where we discussed all sorts of nonsense so do check that out too Uh, and I'm also doing the three track podcast later uh, on this week so that should be out at some point as well Um, and also I forget to plug this every week but my stand-up special miserably happy is still on nextupcomedy.com which is free for the first month of subscription and £3.50 afterwards just go check it out it's going to be on there for ages go watch it thank you Right, on this week's show I have a very short chat with John Myers at the London Yes In My Backyard housing campaign London Yimby Um, plus a look at foreign aid after all the recent news about Oxfam that made me feel oddly better about telling a chugger to fuck off recently Um, and more but not too much fucking Brexit but of course have some of this all right up in your mush first The world of stocks and shares is one of those that causes my face to keep a constant brain freeze impression as inside my brain plays hot butters popcorn on loop. But while my basic understanding of it is that if people in the stock markets, which isn't where they sell OXO apparently, I know, Hugh knew, if they decide that things are bad, then they then make things bad and then everything's bad, and it's kind of the opposite for if they're happy and they have enough cocaine. What I do get is that last week they had their worst week in the stock market since the 2008 financial crisis. Why? Um, That is a good question, but a lot of it is because the markets rely on the idea that the US government debt is the safest and most reliable in the world, and US Treasury bonds are considered risk-free, which allows stock market and bond market traders to kind of decide how much stocks and other assets cost. So, firstly, because the US has had decent growth since the crash, something that has very little to do with rotten persimmon Donald Trump and more to do with his predecessor, and that means that it is likely that interest rates will go up, which will make stocks less attractive to buy because they then cost more. Basically, if wages and savings go up, the men in suits who get sad about the possibility of getting sad, get sad. Does that make sense? No, not really, because it's all a bit nonsense. Also, the big tax cut the Republicans saw through for higher earners And the budget deal could mean that the US deficit ends up being more than $1 trillion in 2019 which means the US has to borrow more which in turn means higher borrowing rates as well. Do I understand anything I've just said? No. Why isn't Wall Street just a place full of walls? I don't know. Meanwhile, in the UK, the Bank of England have suggested interest rates will happen sooner than predicted, though obviously not mine, as I'm still bored and I don't understand what any of this means. But it did cause a jump in the pound, and it's essentially good news for people who want to save money, and really bad news for anyone with a mortgage, but potentially good news for people who haven't got a house, but potentially bad news for Labour's policies that require borrowing, as that'll cost more to do, but potentially really good news for people who like graphs with squiggly lines on, as there'll be absolutely tons of those. So, in summary, stocks ah, uh, U.S. interest woo, which means ah, uh, and in the U.K. maybe interest, whoosh, which means housing ah, uh, but savings yeah. I often wonder why I haven't been offered a job as business correspondent for CBBS with chat like that. There are loads of things that make adulthood the opposite of fun. Uh, one is nose hairs that somehow grow really long overnight, as though they're secretly hoping to weave into your head hair and create some sort of face banjo. Another is a lack of painting with potatoes. And another is council tax. Now, I know council tax is a necessity. I'm very grateful it means I can get my bins collected if and when they actually bother, rather than just leaving them on the street until a fox decides to parade my trash like an art exhibition of my weekly diet. I know that council tax helps local services and children's services and social care and parks and tons of stuff. But getting that letter from the council asking to pay it is always just a little bit sad making and it's about to get sadder as council tax is going to rise in 95% of local authorities and 93% of them are going to have to up service fees as well because since 2010 most councils have suffered 40% or more cuts but are still being expected to carry out all the duties they always have done but for less which as most people know doesn't ever work I mean, if I gave you 50 quid to get the equivalent of £300 pounds worth of jelly beans, they'd be shitty jelly beans and I'd end up either having to buy extra insulin for my type 1 diabetes to cope with eating them, or lose more work time waiting at a GP's for an emergency appointment and overall out of even more cash in the first place. I mean, this is a terrible analogy, but that could be because I gave myself less time to write it. Look, somewhere I'm making a very good point, okay? Stop it. Back in the days of the old Tory government, former Chancellor and Patrick Bateman inspiration George Osborne wanted to free councils of Whitehall and government grants by allowing them to take back local business rate revenue instead of sending it back to central government. So since 2013 councils have kept back 50% of business rate revenue which has made £26 billion nationally. The idea was that by 2020 councils would be entirely self funding. Great plan, but there was no redistribution formula for this plan which meant councils in poorer areas with less business and lower business rates struggled to balance books, while already wealthy areas like Westminster profited. Terrible idea. What do you mean you're not remotely surprised? Still, George has got six jobs, so he's fine. Between 2010 and 2020, Liverpool Council would have suffered 68% of funding cuts, adding up to around £460 million. Northamptonshire County Council declared two weeks ago that they were having to impose emergency controls on spending because they haven't got any dosh left at all. Councils are asking the government to either assure they're going to get more funding or redesign the finance system, and the government are, as per usual, not doing any of those things. And things could get worse from 2022, as the plan for councils to self-fund is still supposedly in place, with the Fair Funding Review Report due, but there have barely been any meetings in Whitehall about how to make it work. So, for now, the only way many councils are going to cope is by taxing residents, i.e. you and me, even more for even less services. Woohoo! More for less, yet again. The only time more for less remotely works is when there's a discount on old Bond movies, and that is it. Back when Madness released the track Our House in 1983, it was all about a working-class lifestyle um, about one family crammed into a Victorian home. But if that song was released now, well, firstly, no one would buy it because Suggs would act like a twat on every TV appearance. But also, it would likely be more about a wealthy family whose main problem is the organic veg box keeps being left in a different place each week or a building that's been turned into 12 flats with young people struggling to afford to live in a cupboard or a home bought by a foreign investor that's been empty for a year. I mean, it would be a very long and quite boring song. What I'm saying is... There is still, in 2018, a housing crisis of the kind that is ruining a lot of young people's lives, increasing homelessness, and may dictate who the next government are, and somehow, despite being a crisis, it would still make a boring movie, or 80s Scar song. Homes are too expensive to buy in parts of England, people are struggling to keep up with monthly mortgage payments, and all the other stuff the fast small print on adverts tell you about, private rents are too expensive, and there is a lack of affordable homes. So the obvious solution to all of this would be build more actually affordable homes, yeah? But there's problems with that you know, including the cost of doing that, where on earth to put them, the fact it would lower housing costs, which would really annoy home-owning voters, and the fact that really annoying people who already have homes complain about not in my backyard because they don't want noisy works near their home or new neighbours or things blocking their view of their own self-importance. And hey, NIMBYism, as it's known, not in my backyardism, has a use. You know, there are times when it's good, such as if your home is about to be demolished for the high-speed rail 2 line, because seriously, no one should get kicked out of their house just because someone else wants to get to Birmingham really quickly. But when it comes to housing, a bit of leeway from total NIMBYs can open up space for development, even if the government are very unlikely to fund that sort of thing in the first place. So this week I spoke to John Myers at London Yimby, a.k.a. Yes In My Backyard, a campaign to increase the affordable housing in the capital by adding to already existing buildings and building in existing spaces that aren't open to the public. John's report on how to end the housing crisis, boost the economy and win more votes was reported on The Guardian, BBC One, The Times and many more. And London Yimby have recently expanded to an Oxford and Cambridge Yimby as well, which you'll hear about in the interview. Now, I'm fully aware that this is a very southern issue, and in this case, a very London-centric issue. So, if you are a listener in the North, Northern Ireland, Wales, or Scotland, or anywhere else in the world, feel free to just skip this bit, or listen and laugh loudly as you sit in your mansions with gardens that you all bought for an apple and a bag of manure, or however it works. But, as I said, the problem is, the crisis does have ripple effects to the rest of the country. Not least, because all us Londoners will eventually move out and then ruin your area instead, as is already happening in Margate. As I said before, this interview is actually quite short. We covered quite a lot in quite a quick chat, so uh, I've put it in very in two very mini sections uh, that should be easily digestible. Anyway, hope you enjoy. Here is John. This is probably quite a silly question, but why is there still a housing crisis in London uh, and particularly in sort of the, the south of the UK? Because I, mean, I remember, you know, there were some possibilities that maybe if it, any, you can find any positives from Brexit, that maybe it would stop the housing crisis or that certain government policies might cause some change. But it seems to be as bad as ever. Why is that?
1: Well, if you dig right down to it, I mean, you know, when there's a drought, um, there's a drought because people don't have enough water when there's a famine there's a famine because people don't have enough food and we have a housing crisis because we just don't have enough homes for all the people who want them and uh, we haven't really done anywhere near enough to get enough decent high quality homes built especially in places like London and the south east where there's a massive crunch
0: so so it's a, it's a complete lack of housing. So none of these kind of policies that have happened recently of uh, the right-to-buy scheme or stamp duty cuts uh, that the government have brought in, none of that makes a difference
1: if there's nowhere for people to get in the first place. Well, they're all sort of tinkering uh, at the edges, unfortunately. Um, some of them are not necessarily in a helpful direction either. And, you know, we just haven't built enough homes for basically 50 years in London. We used to build so many more homes and we used to build... Great homes that people loved as well, and we we just need to get back to that. It really shouldn't be that hard. You know, we've been building homes for hundreds of years. It's not rocket science. Um, and and, and so all we need to do is find the political way to do it. And and you asked me why we've still got this crisis. <laughs> the, the dirty little secret is we've got a housing crisis because politicians generally want there to be a housing crisis because they want houses, house prices to keep on going up because um that makes them popular with with all the homeowners who are two thirds of the voters. Um, and and that's, the, that's the really kind of tough nut to crack. You've got to try and fix the housing crisis um, as a politician and be more popular uh, by build, building lots of houses. So that's the really tricky bit. Does that make right. sense?
0: Yeah, of course. So they're in a sort of, I mean, I say it's a balancing trick. It's not very well balanced at the moment, but it is this, they, they've obviously want to keep uh, the, the housing economy quite good for those uh, that have got, uh, oh God, my brain's completely gone. I'll cut that out. Um, but for those that have got um, property at the moment and they're charging people to live in it, or uh, you know, especially the buy-to-let market, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and so, but it turns out that there are there are ways that you can make nearly everybody happier and still get more housing built. So, and we've been looking at, at things that might work. So, for example, if you go to an individual homeowner and you, and you say, "Well, would you like, you know, would you like permission to add another floor, perhaps?" add another flat on top of your house or or um, or even sometimes, you know, if it's if it's a small home on a big plot, why not knock it down and build two terraced houses? You know, quite often people are up for that because they understand it makes them better off and makes their property more valuable. But you're actually increasing the number of homes as well. So, you know, we think there might be ways forward that involve the kind these kind of, kind of win win options that are making existing homeowners better off, but also creating lots more homes for the people who want them.
0: Right, because that's one of the things I was going to ask is is surely a problem in London is that there's not a lot of space to build houses. So does that then mean that the solution is rather than find space, and there's been arguments about the, whether the green belt should be built on or not, um, The the better option then is perhaps to sort of build up or build on already
1: existing places? Well, it certainly seems that um, the the most popular thing we've come across is, it's, let's just say you walk around Bloomsbury or Pimlico, for example. Um, I mean, people travel from around the world to look at garden squares in Bloomsbury. They're, they're beautiful, and yet those have five times the number of homes, the square footage um, per acre of, of some of the outer parts of London that were built in the 30s or the 50s. So actually, there's a lot more room to make existing streets better and get lots more homes on them at the same time and make them more walkable. And that means they'll support more local shops and pubs and services as well. So so there is a lot of way forward to do better with the land that we've got. The challenge is it's just happening nowhere near quickly enough with the existing system. And we need a radical change to get that moving faster.
0: And how much of a problem is the fact that the places are being built? Um, and I'm basing this on a report that came out, I think it was last week in The Guardian, that there are 15,000 luxury flats in London at the moment that just aren't being sold. Um, is is that where all the construction is
1: going to, to places that no one can afford whatsoever? Um, well, it's a great question. We clearly need a lot more affordable housing. Um, it's not clear that some of those are high-rise towers that are being built would be suitable for kind of social housing, because actually often people are very unhappy on them if if they're living on restricted means and they're expensive with service charges. Um, It's not clear that the cost of building them would have have worked out economically. Uh, The other trouble is, if you don't build some flats for bankers, the banker will come and outbid you for the cheaper flat that you wanted to buy. So, you know, what we think is you need a healthy mix, but we definitely need, obviously, lots of affordable housing.
0: Right. And so how do you ensure then that the housing that you're building elsewhere if you are kind of, uh, say, improving on people's houses or adding flats to places and things? How do you ensure that that is, you know, uh, uh, not going to stay as affordable housing and not become kind of, you know, the, the crisis as it is?
1: How do you stop that from rising up as well? Where's, where's, the, where's the line? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great question. So there are plenty of things you can do. So, for example, I mean, one of the things we've looked at is what if you took a street of houses um, uh, where people own them, and you say to them, would you all like to get permission to do this to build lots more housing, either by um, extending, adding floors, or or even by you know if if they want to, um, by knocking down, turning into terrace houses or, or or mansion blocks or flats, and you know if people. And that turns out to be quite popular, and you you need to put all kinds of safeguards in place. So you'd say you know you'd only give those permissions if a big majority of the street was in favour of it. Uh, but if they go for that, there are lots of ways you can use that to raise money for um, for for, for to build a social to build social housing to build affordable housing. Um, you could even impose requirements for, for the larger developments that there would be a, a, a social housing component of it. Um, the the real trick is just to unlock. Lots more places where people are happy for people to build because that's the problem we've got right now. You know, we have this incredible fight against almost every development because people don't like it. They don't want it near them. And unless we reverse that, unless we get people saying, yes, actually, I do want more homes near me, um, then we're never going to solve this problem at all
0: and that's obviously what your campaign is about London YIMBY is uh, and the YIMBY I should say for listeners stands for yes in my backyard um, (laughs) which is the opposition of uh, NIMBY which is not in my backyard exactly Um, But, uh, I mean, that's a weird mix of feelings. If if the majority of people are saying, no, don't build near me, I don't want it overcrowded, but also people are saying housing's too expensive and there isn't enough homes, how do you persuade people to kind of join that thinking together and say, hang on, you know, if you want the change, you've got to be the first person to not mind? Well,
1: it's really really challenging, you know, and so there is this... Definitely a recognition um, that housing is much more on the agenda, much more of a problem than even it was five years ago. Um, and as, you know, as young people are getting more and more involved in politics, that's one of their number one concerns. And housing has risen way up the agenda. It's still really difficult to get um, homeowners to support uh, ha- more homes near them and not to fight tooth and nail against it. And so you know, we're looking into options which, which in some way get them involved in the process, get them supporting it. And as I said, the obvious, the kind of obvious easy way is if you let them build more or have the right to build more on their own land and you can incorporate requirements for that to fund social or affordable housing. But that way, you know, they're better off as well. And so you kind of square that circle, if that makes sense.
0: Sure. It's, it has to be something in it, like, like you mentioned earlier as well, with the kind of people that who,
1: who have got a lot of investment in property, you have to make sure there's something in it for them as well. Yeah, I mean, we're really focusing on making sure homeowners are happy. We kind of tend to think that big you know, landowners and institutions can look after themselves. But what we're trying to do is, is make sure that the big majority of voters can be happier and better off and live in better places um, through reforms which, which work to solve the crisis.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. And we'll be back with John in a minute, but first. Probably the most depressing story of the last week was the one about Oxfam. No, not the charity that helps reunite bullocks with their loved ones. I mean Oxfam, the global aid and development charity. You know, the other Oxfam. The story, which was broken by the Times, says that the charity covered up complaints of sexual harassment, bullying, intimidation, and downloading pornography while delivering aid to Haiti in 2011, with further allegations about similar incidents in Chad, the country, not the person. The whole story is pretty grim, and the deputy chief executive has resigned, taking full responsibility, while those accused of the crimes are being investigated and may lead to being charged in the UK. And lots of other stories about over 120 workers from different charities but having sexual harassment claims filed against them have all leaked out. But while this story shows that charitable companies shouldn't escape scrutiny and investigation, another political issue has bubbled up from this like a leaky sewage pipe. And that is the notion that once again, we should cut supposedly pointless foreign aid. Jacob Rees-Mogg, with his face like if Harry Potter's only trick was being an arsehole, took a petition to Parliament last week of more than 100,000 signatures of Daily Express readers demanding aid budget cuts. I know, I was shocked too. I had no idea that that many Express readers were alive and could write their own names. I mean, who possibly thought that a paper that previously has headlines about a migrant squam would detest the idea of helping people outside of their own village? Weird. So, I know I've spoken about this quite some time ago, it was way back in episode 27, I think, but for newer listeners, I thought it would be worth revisiting just what foreign aid is, what it does, and where it fits on my chart of favourite aids all the way from lemonade to band-aid. The UK spends a whopping 0.7% of its budget on foreign aid. Yes, I was being sarcastic with the word whopping. I mean, sure, to be fair, in 2017, 0.7% of his budget was £12.1 billion, and that is a lot of money for me, say, to um, buy jelly beans with. But for a government budget, when you consider, you know, that benefits and pensions will cost more than £219 billion this fiscal year, it's a bit just like the government are popping their spare chains down on those whirly spiral charity bins, and why wouldn't you? It's really fun watching it race down to its inevitable black hole death like the world's most evil velodrome. Apparently, £12.1 billion is less per household than the amount of food we throw away, which is why when your parents would bully you into finishing dinner because there's some poor child in Africa who would love that food, you could have retorted that actually by increasing foreign aid, you could achieve both children's dreams of dinner requirements a lot more easily. At the same time, the social care budget right now is facing a deficit of £2 billion. So I suppose you could say, well, if we didn't pay for foreign aid, that could be fixed several times over with the same money but then you'd also definitely have to eat your dinner, so it's quite tough. 0.7% is the UN recommended amount for each country to contribute uh, towards foreign aid and despite agreeing to it in the 1970s, we only managed it as a country for the first time in 2013 because, well, we probably wanted something from somewhere. 16% of foreign aid goes to crisis relief charities like Oxfam and the like, but most of the rest of it goes to multilateral organisations like the UN, and the biggest chunk goes to Bilateral Aid, where our government gives money direct to other governments or official organisations for aid purposes. So at the moment, most of ours goes to Pakistan, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, Nigeria and Syria. Yeah, with maybe the exception of Syria, a lot of that feels like petty apology money for years of terrible British interference and its consequences, doesn't it? It's a bit like when a dad doesn't bother with child support, but every Christmas pops a fiver in an envelope and hopes that'll do. But there have been problems in the past with where this aid money goes to and what it funds. I mean, last year, BBC's Panorama found that money being sent to Adam Smith International to fund the Free Syrian Police, a group supposed to restore all law and order to the area, was instead ending up with extremists and went towards funding things all the way from stonings to adding fictional people onto the payroll. I mean, it is amazing that on one hand you can be barbaric enough to stone people to death and on the other, creative enough to invent an entirely new person. I mean, I always wonder how many lives... Worldwide, creative writing courses could save. Hmm. Up until last year, the UK gave North Korea about £4 million in foreign aid, which feels wrong, and a lot of money went to the Rwandan government despite evidence of them using it to support anti-government rebels in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, I mean, all that suggests to me is that more research should really be done into where the money goes, not that aid should stop. I mean, for example, I don't not give money to homeless people in case of the incredibly rare chance that they override their hunger to buy a spiked bat... I mean, I mainly don't give money to homeless people because I'm constantly broke as well, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't. There is one other possibly negative aspect of foreign aid if this sort of thing bothers you and you spend your nights keeping watch over your neighbourhood with a spear because what if the foreigners arrive? According to the Centre of Global Development, foreign aid encourages migration rather than curbs it. You know, because better education, income and structure gives people aspirations and makes them want to travel and seek out jobs and work elsewhere. Ugh, how dare they have hopes and dreams? Disgusting. Let's quell that immediately, as there's definitely no way they'd fit in in Britain if they're even remotely romantic about a positive future. Ugh. There are also arguments that certain countries don't need or even want aid anymore as their economies develop, but they are given foreign aid by more powerful countries who want to keep a hand in their politics and restructuring. So those are the downsides, but they're also not the reasons for this call against foreign aid, which is mainly down to the notion that we should help people here first rather than help people abroad. Because, you know, everyone's forgotten that without austerity you could easily do both. It's also highly likely that if foreign aid was scrapped and used towards aid in the UK, the people receiving it would then be classed as scroungers by the very same express readers within minutes. I sort of feel really the easy solution would just be to scrap express readers. Hmm. But with climate change, meaning the possibility of disasters is increasing and resources are depleting, foreign aid is now a necessity. Not just for moral reasons, but also by aiding countries to become better developed. It presents more trading and economic opportunities for our country as well. Something that we might well need after, um, I don't know, March next year maybe? Similarly, as countries such as Russia and China rise up the global power ladder, the UK might need to keep paying foreign aid to keep some political allies as well, especially again after, uh, just a wild guess, March next year? But the trick would be to reform foreign aid. That's what needs to happen. Make it more effective. Give it to places that we've properly researched for specific projects that require knowledge and expertise from the UK on areas we're good at. What do you mean that's only complaining about things then? No, I meant educational systems, health services, minimising pollution, things like that. I mean, admittedly, our government aren't good at that, but people in the UK are. There have also been studies into providing aid directly to those in need rather than through governments or companies. And one of those studies showed that 25 African countries receive enough aid to lift all their citizens out of poverty if it was distributed individually. So don't get rid of foreign aid, change it. And just maybe, maybe, if Jacob Rees-Mogg made more effort delivering a few notes to those who need it rather than petitions to government signed by thousands of those who don't, it might all just make a little bit more sense. And now, back to John. Do you think there's a kind of... um public appetite for this right now anyway because as we mentioned you know people are getting more and more angry about the housing crisis but um, also I live in uh, Haringey in North London and we've just uh, recently had our council leader resign and various councils resign mainly because of a housing redevelopment programme that wasn't providing much social or affordable housing and the residents got hugely angry about this um, and of protested. and do you think that we're now it, it's so much in the news and there's so much pressure on politicians to do something about it do you think that we're reaching a point where it's, it's it's going to have to change.
1: I think you're absolutely right that the pressure is building and we really need to do something. Um, and the other thing is you're seeing, you're seeing lots more people standing up and saying, you know, yes, we need more homes. Um, yes. And being willing to do something about it. Um, whether that gets changed in the really short term, you know, I don't know. We've just seen a proposal yesterday that would let Um, people add another story or two to their homes in certain circumstances, that might help a bit. Um, It's probably a step in the right direction. The details are still to be worked out. But we're still a long way, I think, from the kind of radical change that we need, which is, you know, 10 times more than what we're doing right now.
0: Is it is it a London only problem as well? Because obviously your campaign is London, Yimby, but I sort of know from travelling around that Oxford is uh, hugely expensive for for properties. Brighton is really expensive. There are other cities, particularly in the sort of uh, sort of south and southeast, um, that it's an issue for. Is you know it, it it's it's not just London this is happening in, right?
1: No, of course, and absolutely, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, so as you say, Oxford's got a massive problem. Um, so there is an Oxford YIMBY group that's launched, and the people who live in Oxford, we would encourage them to get in touch with them. Um, there's also one that started in Cambridge. We're encouraging YIMBY groups in any city where there's a housing crisis. And the housing crisis is different in different places. You know, in, um, in other cities, it can be a, a shortage um, in a different way. So it really depends as you go around the country. But we're definitely not just... The Yimby movement as a whole um, supports a whole range of different, solving a whole range of different kinds of housing crisis in different places.
0: What can, I mean, can I, can, do you mind if I ask, are you a homeowner or are you somebody that's currently, uh, because I'm I'm somebody that's now renting and I'm in sort of my 30s and the idea of ever being able to afford a house for me is very far off uh, unless, I, I I mean, I should really keep entering the lottery. Um, but, you know, what's, uh, are you a homeowner yourself?
1: yeah so i'm i'm forty four i was i was lucky i've got a i've got a home um i've got a mortgage uh but lots of our other volunteers and members are either not homeowners or some of them are grandparents and they're worried about where their grandkids are going to live you know this is a problem for everybody um and so it sh- it shouldn't matter kind of what stage of, of life you're at everybody should be doing something about this because this is this is just a massive crisis it's you know it ruins people's lives the the commuting causes stress and ill health it's destroying people's opportunities i mean it just it just causes so many different problems that that's why it's encouraging that we're seeing people from all walks of life coming to get involved with the Imbi movement
0: Absolutely. And, and, um, you know, whether you're a homeowner or or not a homeowner, what are the best ways that people can get involved? Now, I know you've mentioned earlier about trying to encourage people um, or the ways you try and encourage people to expand on their own house and things. But what can they do through you and what campaigns are London and be working on right now that people can uh, do direct action through?
1: so if they're, if they're in London please get in touch with us um if you'd like to set up a local group you know what we're encouraging people so from i'm i'm in Camden there's no point in me coming down um to barking and, and and sort of talking to people there and saying what what they should do i mean that that's much better coming from people in barking so we we what we're aiming for is a Yimby group in every borough um so they can talk to their councils directly and push for for more housing that people can afford um, so that's one super easy thing to set up. If you'd like to help, get help with that, just get in touch with us. We'll be happy to do that. Or get involved with the London Yimby campaign itself. And we're putting pressure on the GLA to get more housing built. Um, if you're in a different area outside London, we can equally help you s- set up there. And what we're aiming to do is build this huge national movement, um, so that politicians would finally wake up to something. That this is ab- absolutely something we've got to fix. You know, we're, we're calling out. We need to do a trial, basically. We need to go out and find um, a suburban street, for example, where people think that they could have much more attractive density and whether they're they're happy to tolerate that degree of change um, in order to get more housing and also to make the homeowners there better off. So we're looking for people who think their street might be interested. They should please get in touch. Um, Because the other thing I wanted to mention about about whether we've got room is we actually, we actually have huge amounts of room. Um, you know, London is a, is a massive city. What we, what we we The challenge is to get us, everybody agreed on attractive ways to do more with what we've got. And so you need a whole street to uh, well, kind of we volunteer just, for this? Actually, we ideally, just um, frankly, just one homeowner on a street um, who thinks they're interested, we'd love to come. Come and talk to them. They can bounce it off their neighbours, see if they're interested, see if they're not. Um, just have a chat, really. We're not asking for any commitments. But we're just we're just building building lists of people who might be interested, and then we can find a place to do a trial. And uh, obviously, that if that happens on that street, that will make that home a, much better off. I mean, it could even double their house price. Um, no, no guarantees that any of this will happen. But we're interested in people who who, who might be interested in giving it a go.
0: That's great, and uh, the first step there is that Londoners are going to have to meet
1: their neighbours, which is terrifying.
0: But you know, <laughs> hey, it, it may happen. Who knows?
1: <laughs> cool, brilliant. Well, this will achieve something useful. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Is there also, um, apart from uh, yourself and your camp and the YMB campaign, um, are there other campaigns you would particularly recommend, either about affordable housing or, or otherwise, um, that you suggest the listeners kind of follow or look up?
1: yeah absolutely so um, it's priced out for example for the people who would like to buy and feel that they've been priced out of the market generation rent does some great work we, we you know we get on really well with them and we recommend that people get involved there um, and then the charities like shelter which do brilliant work um, which people I'm sure already know about
0: Thank you to John for that very informative chat. Um, You can find out more about London Yimby and their campaign and sign up to their mailing list at London Yimby on Twitter or LondonYimby.org online. The other campaigns that John recommends following are Priced Out, who are on Twitter at PricedOutUK or at PricedOut.org.uk online, Uh, Generation Rent at GenRentUK on Twitter or GenerationRent.org and Shelter, who, I mean, if you can't find them, how are you allowed on the internet? I've got the next three guests lined up, but I'm trying to get a few in the bag for potential baby crisis in March so I can at least wheel out some interviews, if nothing else. And as I said at the top of the show, I would love details on grassroots campaigns near you, uh, whether you are in the UK or world. So please send through any details of ones that you know or have heard of or just any other guests you think I should interview or subjects I should really interview someone about. At on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or Partly Political Broadcast at gmail.com. Or why not press your message into wet clay using a cuneiform stylus and have it hand delivered by ancient Persian couriers, only for them to find that it won't fit in my letterbox and has to be delivered several doors down to number 38, who still won't let me collect it unless I give them full ID. And frankly, the idea of wet clay ruining their carpet makes me so happy I'll likely leave it there. As always, it's much, much easier to email. Richard, We're on the road to Brexit, la 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 la. Don't tell anyone, uh, you know, in case it compromises our position or something, but there is every chance we might actually get some news that actually means something about Brexit in the next few weeks if the government are to be believed, which actually hearing that last bit of that sentence out aloud means we probably won't get any news, does it? We're still where we were before, but slightly worse in that no one has any idea about anything like before, but due to this continued lack of ideas, the EU may not even grant us a transition period because we have no ideas, meaning we'd have even less time to try and get any ideas in. This transition deal is only valid if the UK work out whether EU citizens will have full residency in the UK if they arrive after March 2019. I mean, why on earth they'd be arriving then? I have no idea. I suppose you do get grief tourists who have holidays to places where they only visit the sites of really horrific events, so that would make sense. Another issue is that David Davis wants the UK to avoid implementing new EU directives it doesn't agree with during the transition, which Barnier doesn't agree with because he's had to put up with Davis for months now without making any any progress? So it probably can't wait to push for a new EU law in April 2019 that basically bans David Davises from travelling abroad as soon as possible. Oh, and there's also the Irish border, but you know, that's only a whole country that could be entirely fucked by all of this, so who cares? Barnier says that a hard border would be unavoidable if the UK leave the single market and customs union, something that I've said loads on this podcast, but the government still think that, you know, hey, they had a dream about an invisible border made with magic, so it'll all be fine. So that is really it for Brexit news now, Um, except that last week, The Telegraph, uh, a paper designed for people who park their 4x4s on school crossings in order to pick up their kids despite living four doors away, last week they published an article by Nick Timothy. You know Nick Timothy, a man so shit at advice even Theresa May sacked him. This article warned of billionaire George Soros, who is apparently secretly backing a plot to thwart Brexit. According to this piece, Soros is backing the campaign group Best for Britain, who are pushing for a second EU referendum, and part of their plan is supposedly to get Tory donors on board so that it undermines May and targets MPs to vote against the final Brexit deal so it triggers an election or second referendum. Ooh, terrifying. And George Soros has given them £400,000. Now, firstly, the big problem with this story is that That isn't really very secret. I mean, you can look it up online. That's that's what I did. It's really easy. Best for Britain are operating really quite openly, and they're very open about all the donations they've been given and by whom. You know, completely unlike the Vote Leave campaigns, which are still under investigation as to where all their money came from. I'm still certain that a big part of it was from Skeletor. But also, George Soros is a name that you might have seen if you go online regularly comes up when anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists are going on and on about Jewish financiers plotting and coordinating politics. And that's because George Soros is a Hungarian Jewish migrant who fled to the UK in 1944 to escape the Nazis, only to find that many years later they still harass him on Twitter. Still, he then came into money through some very successful investment, and throughout his life he's donated to philanthropic causes and is generally disliked by Trump fans and people who support nationalistic governments. I mean, if George Soros was female, he'd be the ultimate anti-Trump. And probably even more of a target for those on Twitter. To denounce Soros' donation as secret signals to all those weirdos that Brexit is somehow being ruined by behind-the-scenes elitists, but really to everyone else in the world it's just a sign that someone who has funds is backing a cause that he thinks is worthwhile. I often wonder if champagne socialist is seen as a slur because other British people realise that it makes them look shit for not supporting humanitarian causes. What's far more of a story than any of this is that while Best for Britain is gaining support, a lot of senior Conservative donors are increasingly frustrated with Theresa May's constant indecision and asking her to pull things out of the bag pretty quickly, or they may stop funding the Conservatives in the same way. But hey, it's cool, you know, because within three weeks we'll all have our road to Brexit and we'll be riding down here 80 miles per hour, windows down, hair in the wind, playing some loud fat beats as we career towards a brighter future, right? Or, more likely, we'll probably discover that the road to Brexit was a contract that the government sold to be project managed by Carillion. <laughs> And that is all for this week's partly political broadcast. Um, it should be back to normal format next week with an extra normal sized interview. Um, I've got an interview I'm very excited for you to hear in episode 91. It is great. Um, and don't forget if you do enjoy the show, please do donate to the Patreon or Ko fi. Write me a lovely review on your favourite podcast app, or toilet wall, or crop field. And please do recommend the show to people you know, but only people you know because you shouldn't talk to strangers. Big thanks to ACAS for hosting the show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for providing the music, even though he's not let me steal any new beats for ages. Yeah, hint, 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 hint. This will be back next week when we'll discover that the road to Brexit will be closed for construction until 2030, and until then we'll have to take a series of diversions that means it takes forever to get barely anywhere. Bye! This week's episode was brought to you by David Davis's Chocolate Surprises. They are just a box of chocolates, but it fucking baffles him how they got in a box when they can't move by themselves. I mean, who put the lid on? Baffling.